Hi, it's Bernard Nomberg with the Nomberg Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you for stopping by the Nomberg Law Live podcast. Each week, I have interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. This week is author T.K. Thorne. Ms. Thorne is a prolific author, former police officer, social worker, and so much more. She has written a few just outstanding books about the city and history of Birmingham, Alabama. Behind the Magic Curtain is the book that we're really talking about this week. I think you'll really enjoy learning some of the history of Birmingham's turbulent past in this episode. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review, and subscribing will ensure that you get each podcasts as they come out on a weekly basis. Thank you again. Good morning, everybody. It's Bernard Nomberg. It's Tuesday morning, a little after 10 a.m. Central, and it is time for another episode of Nomberg Law Live. And as I tell you guys each week, I have interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. And I'm so pleased to have author and so much more. T.K. Thorne is my guest today. Good morning, T.K. It's so good to see you. Good morning. It's good to see you too. Well, I, I hope you're staying staying dry and, and out of this typical South spring weather that we're having. So lovely, isn't it? Well, today is not, but yesterday was just gorgeous. It really, it really was. And hopefully this, whatever this event is for the day, will get through pretty soon. But for those of you who don't know TK, you really should. And this current uh, phase of her life, she is a prolific author and has penned several outstanding books. But the book that I have asked her for us to talk about, among other things today, is Behind the Magic Curtain. And this book came out sometime last year, wasn't it? Yes, it was spring of last year. If you have any interest in the civil rights movement and time period in not just Birmingham, not just in Alabama, but what was going on really in the South as a whole, this book is that and, and really so, so much more. But before we jump into that, TK, you've had such an interesting life. I love, I've read so much recently. You grew up in Montgomery. You were educated in Tuscaloosa. You worked for so many years in, in Birmingham. Social worker, you've, you've, you've broken all these barriers. First Jewish woman on the Birmingham police force, captain. Is there anything you haven't done that What's next? Because I, I want to know where, where you're going next with this, or, or have you figured that part out just yet? You know, <clears throat> the wonderful thing about life is that you can reinvent yourself. And uh, just last year, I started, I started taking up painting, uh, watercolor painting, and I love it. So that's a new kind of phase of my life. Incredible, and I, I didn't mention creative writing coach. I know you have horses as one of your passions, uh, grant writer. I could go on and on and on, but enough. 
I want to know what what led you to writing not just this book, but you also wrote about the 16th Street bombing case. Where did this, it's one thing to live through it for you and for so many others, but then to research it and write it, make it come alive in these books that you've so beautifully written. Talk a little bit about the inspiration and what led you to actually doing it. It's one thing for it to be up here and be an idea, but then to do it is a whole different thing. So share a little bit of the genesis of that, please. Well, first, I guess I should say, that I have been writing for, I, I should have counted before I came on here, but it's it's 40 something years. Um, so it's not like I just grabbed that skill out of the blue. I, it took many, many years and probably longer for me than others, but I've been working on it and I believe that it, anything that you really, really want to do, if you're stubborn about it, and keep trying because the only way to guarantee that you won't succeed is to quit trying. So I did, I kept trying and I, I finally, um, my first book didn't come out until about 2009 or 10, nine, I think. Uh, and that was Noah's wife. And I'd had several books rejected by the, and I'd written seven books before that book uh, became, you know, got published. So that's the first thing I want to kind of give you a background. And I became a police officer by accident. Wait, how did, how, how does someone become a police officer by accident? <laughs> it's, not well, like, wanted... it's not like you just turn the corner and, oh, I'll just go into this store. It doesn't happen. <laughs> you got to explain how that happened. Sort of like that. Um, you know, I'll try to make this short. Uh, when I was very young, I read a lot and I read a lot of science fiction and I decided that the coolest thing in the world would be to meet aliens. Okay. First contact. And I truly believe that they were going to land in my backyard. And what age, <laughs> what age was this? The universe. <laughs> what age were you when you were having this Going through oh that. Lord! Um, I remember. I remember looking out my back window. So I had to be like eight to early, early um, preteen, maybe you know, age. And I got frustrated because they never landed in the backyard like I wanted. And so I decided to write a letter to NASA and ask them what I should take in college and study in order to be an astronaut. And I wrote this letter and I showed it to my mom to check for spelling, but she thought it was so cute. I don't, I'm not sure how old I was, maybe 12, mm -hmm. maybe less, but uh, she showed it to my father who was uh, an engineer by education and thinking. And he called me to in to talk to him and told me I could not be an astronaut. Oh. Yeah, and I was completely devastated. And the reasons that he told me that were not, it was not a 
uh, misogynist statement at all. It turned out that it was about my eyesight, which was pretty bad. Uh, of course, at that time, you do understand that only military fighter pilots were becoming astronauts. They didn't have the crew, you know, different crew and everything. So it was a different time. But again, I didn't know this, my, but my father had wanted, had been in the Navy World War II and wanted to be a pilot, had no clue. And, and he was turned down because of his eyesight. So he was only trying to save his little girl from a lot of disappointment, the disappointment he felt, but it had the effect of just completely turning my world upside down. And my mother tried to, to encourage me and say that there were lots of other positions in science that I could pursue and help people get, you know, go up. But I did, she didn't understand, you're not gonna meet uh, aliens in the control room. <laughs> And so I didn't know what I was going to do. And my mother was very much involved in Alabama, um, I say, for the good. She was the state lobbyist for the League of Women Voters. And she lobbied for all kinds of causes, education, um, getting rid of the poll tax, environmental issues. And this uh, is in Montgomery. Is this when you were growing up in Montgomery in the 50s and 60s? Yes. Yes. Not an easy time to do the type of work she was trying to do, particularly where and when she was doing it either. And she dragged me to the Capitol several times to meet legislators, mm -hmm. and or not to meet them, but just to show me what was, educate me, I guess. And I remember... I it, what it it had the effect of uh, making sure that I never went into politics. <laughs> Frank, frankly, the fact that your mother was able to gain an audience with those people at that time speaks volumes for who she was and what she was able to do. Oh, absolutely. I, even whatever age I was, and I, all I can say is I remember having to look way up to see people. So how... <laughs> I was so impressed with her because she was able to make very intelligent, you know, well-articulated arguments, but she kept her Southern charm while she did it. And, and I guess subconsciously it, it affected me in knowing that you don't have to give up your femininity or your, you know, diplomatic skills or your charm or whatever in order to make, you know, to uh, make a point or to influence people. But mom ended up being in the um, Alabama Women's Hall of Fame mm -hmm. after she died. She died at an early age. She was only 55. Wow, but she was definitely a role model. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did, did some of those experiences, did that make an impression on you that ultimately led to joining the Birmingham police force or is it? It did, it did in an, in, I'm sorry, in an indirect way. Yes. So when it came time to go to college, I chose social work because of my mother, uh, because of my interest in helping people and, and changing things. And I went, uh, I went to Montevallo and then I transferred to the university of Alabama. 
in Tuscaloosa and I got I got on the um, the master's program. And at some point I had to choose a topic to write a paper about and do an internship. And at that time I was I had just gotten married and lived in Hoover. And so one of the choices was the police social work program in Birmingham. I chose that primarily because it was in Birmingham and that's where I lived. So around that little nexus, my whole life changed because I, I did that and then I did, I was an intern in that police social work program, which was very progressive mm -hmm. for Birmingham Police Department at the time. Yeah. And, and uh, go ahead. Well, the, the chief of police, uh, who was Jimmy Parsons at the time, read the paper I had written and asked me to come work for the department as a grant writer, mm -hmm. which I did for about a year and a half. And I knew, you know, I was fresh out of college, very uh, sheltered, young. I guess I was a young woman, but I was not much more than a girl <laughs> at that time. And I didn't know anything about the police department or anything about much of anything. So I had to, I asked if I could ride with the officers to learn what they needed. My first, my first grant assignment was a computer for the Birmingham Police Department for, for computer-aided computer dispatching. At that time, everybody, um, the way that a call came in, it was written down on a card and it went on a conveyor belt to the dispatcher. Yeah, so this would have been Birmingham's first uh, computer, the city's. Wow. And so I rode with the officers to, to try to figure out what they needed so I could write this grant intelligently. And that, you know, I did that for several grants. And then I decided it was a whole lot more fun <laughs> to be in that patrol car and, and have all the, you know, the different experiences. And I saw that the police officers could help people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really want to be sitting behind a desk for the rest of my life. And so I worked my way from the top to the bottom and went to the police academy. Mm -hmm. And that's how it happened. It, it, it's one thing to be a social worker, then a grant writer, but it's not the natural progression <laughs> to me to ultimately rise to captain. How many years did you put in with the Birmingham Police Department before you retired? Um, about 21 years. Wow. Just, and, and during that time period, I, I don't know what year that you retired, but I know that a lot of the individuals who were on the Birmingham police force at that time certainly were around during maybe even Bull Connor's time and coming forward. Did you, were you exposed to those stories? Did people share experiences or by the time you were on the police force were the topics, I'm not gonna say a dead topic, but just kind of a retired and let's move forward mentality? It's such an interesting question. And I've, I've thought about it and tried to kind of go back to remembering. Uh, I heard a lot of things 
but I, I let's see, I became a police officer in 1978. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, you know, more than a decade since the middle 60s or, or about a decade. And things were definitely changing, but there were people who knew what it was like from back in that time. And so I did hear a lot of stories uh, that kind of verified some of the stories I would later hear uh, about that era. But it was, I would say it was a transitional period for the police department. And I did not feel like they were in the same place that they had been in the 60s. I, I was gonna say a lot of those men who were on the force either had retired or now deceased or in the, I'll call the twilight of their time yes. on the force. It certainly doesn't mean that things were all well in the world within that, within the department, but certainly they were improving from where they had been 15 and 20 years prior. But before we get into the writing of the, the two books, I want to welcome the audience again. I'm with author TK Thorne and we're, we're running through her just most interesting journey of going from growing up in Montgomery and being educated in Tuscaloosa and then now employed for many years on the Birmingham police force to now becoming such a, a well-known author. And the book that most recently came out is the one that I just devoured in about two days. It was so fantastic of a, a reading. Any book that has over 600 footnotes in it, guys, you know has been well-researched I want to know from on your book behind the magic curtain, TK. Do you have in your mind? Do you, do you, how many people did you get to interview for this? Um, I I interviewed personally at least fifty people, uh, but I I listened to more interviews than that because the the archives at the Civil Rights Institute was a real wealth of interviews. They did a, they had a project going where they tried to talk to just about everybody locally that they could find that had been around in that era, black and white. And so that was a real treasure. And we're almost, gosh, hard to believe, 60 years since Birmingham's change of government from the Bull Connor era to the mayoral system. So unfortunately, a lot of those people are deceased. Their next generation family members are, are around, but don't, you know, they aren't the same as, I guess, talking to those people. Behind the Magic Curtain, really, it doesn't take away from the struggle and the fight of the African-American community at all. In fact, the way I, looked at the book and, and read it, two, two observations I wanted to share, and I'd love your feedback, is one, the courage that the white community had to undergo to try to lock arms, if you will, with the African-American community to, to advocate with them and for them. And then the other comment I wanted to make, TK, as I was reading the book, I kept asking myself, had I been working and living in Birmingham during that time period, been a business person, would I have had the courage 
to do what some of these individuals, men and women, some are Jewish, some are Catholic, some are all different types of religions or non-religious, but what they all had in common is that they were not African-American. They were not dark skin color. They were not treated the way that others who were oppressed were treated. But I've had that courage. I don't have an answer to that. I'd like to think that I had that courage, but because of their efforts several decades ago, we don't have to go through the frontline actions that they had to undergo and risking their lives and some losing their lives. So back backing up, do I have a, my first comment, TK, do I have a, a, a decent approach to, you? the book doesn't take away from the efforts of the African-American community at all. It doesn't, um, it just helps to emphasize what maybe what they were doing with the white community. I guess that's the best way to describe it, trying to be brothers and sisters in arms. I think you have it exactly the way I perceived it. Uh, one thing that I hadn't realized about that, and I'd really never thought about it until I started working on this book, and, and it, the more I did, the more I came to understand the cost. Um, and and I, first of all, let me reemphasize what you said. This is this book and this effort and this the telling of these stories is in no way meant to take away from the tremendously brave acts or or lessen the horrible uh, reality that Black people had to face since they came to this country at all, but the story the stories of the white people who did fight against the status quo are important to tell and one thing that i started realizing was in the black community one thing they had that i so admire was the sense of community and and those who spoke out were not always approved of by others because it their actions threatened the community, the black community. And so there were, um, there were various reactions, but as a whole, it seems to me that a person was embraced by their own community, no matter what stance they took. But in the white community, in the, if a white person stood up, they were um, pretty much disowned uh, uh, from their community. Uh, and and they really did go through a lot of things that people don't know about. A lot of uh, threatening phone calls and uh, in some case, in, in a few cases, actual beatings and, and uh, um, they paid a cost. Their neighbors wouldn't speak to them. You know, we're social beings. And so that was really, really hard being ostracized at the very least. Yes. Those who stuck up. But two, two other interesting things that I, I found is that the black community wasn't always in agreement about how things should be perceived in the public's eye when protesting or making their cause known. <clears throat> Dr. King and Reverend Shuttlesworth often clashed about how 
things should go on. And those who were living here on a day-to-day -day basis probably had a little bit better daily understanding and feel for the temperament of the community downtown, as opposed to Dr. King coming in and out at times, seemed to really push the button a little bit further that maybe Mr. Gadsden or Reverend Shuttlesworth, whoever it was locally, really kind of really with the, I don't know if this is the right term, boots on the ground, ears to, to the community, they clashed often, didn't they? About how to go about change. While everyone had the same desired goal, it may not have been the same journey for everyone involved. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And that was one of the interesting ironies that I uncovered. Uh, or and I, I don't say that I was the first, I uncovered it as in uh, revealed to the world something they didn't know or historians didn't know. It was just uncovered it for myself. Was it that there was, there was disagreement and in Birmingham there was, there were, uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth was kind of the author of uh, I guess what John Lewis calls stirring up good trouble. Uh, he was, uh, Shuttlesworth was definitely the firebrand that was trying to ignite change in Birmingham. And he truly believed that the way to do that was direct, what he called direct action, mm -hmm. which was, you know, getting out and, and marching and protesting. But he also understood that the law was so important and he initiated uh, some really important uh, lawsuits that changed things in addition to direct, direct or as part of direct action, I guess. But he lobbied the city for um, uh, lots of different things, for police officers to be on the police force, for the parks to open up. Uh, and he was really the one that, that went after uh, Dr. King to come to Birmingham. And it was his efforts, plus the uh, Miles College boycott in 1962, the year right before the King came, that convinced Dr. King that this was the spot to launch this, this campaign. And, and I think Dr. King had, his vision was on a national scale and Shuttlesworth wanted change now in his community. Not that he didn't want, right. but I think uh, King was more of a strategist for a national uh, goal. And, and Birmingham. And so they did conflict sometimes, and the community conflicted. Uh, the community did not want the children's march to happen mm -hmm. in general. And King uh, kind of agreed with them, and he was very hesitant to do it. There were other people in his organization that pushed it forward. And for those of you who don't know about the Children's March, it is such a fascinating uh, time in Birmingham and, and in the United States history. I don't know, maybe I'm just not well educated enough. I don't know of another event in our United States where children were at such the epicenter for change. And literally thousands of African-American children, and I won't go into all the details about it. You certainly did a beautiful job of bringing it out in your book, 
but so powerful. It's it's just it's it's hard to comprehend, and I guess unless you were actually there and visualizing it. But the other thing I wanted to get your your intake on, and I never thought that this was such a wonderful idea, but when the the rabbis came down to Birmingham, and they may have had good motives, maybe, but it certainly didn't, in my opinion, my humble opinion, didn't help anything for the big picture. What was your take on, I guess, share just a little bit of background, if you can, about the, the 18 rabbis who came to visit Birmingham? What was their, their purpose, and, and did they accomplish what they wanted to accomplish? Um. That story was really, I think, important because it illustrated the, the conflict that the Birmingham's Jewish community was struggling with. And that is that, you know, there were many people in the Jewish community that, that felt that, they, that Blacks should have e equality. Uh, but this was only like, 15 years since the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of put yourself in their mindset. And, you know, 15 years may sound like a long time, but 9-11 uh, uh, happened over 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay, so that gives you kind of a clue. Those, those mm -hmm. of us who lived through that uh, don't feel like it was that long ago. <laughs> And, and the people, you know, the Jewish community felt the pressure of the, of the Holocaust of, of having the community turn against them. So they were trying to walk this line where they didn't agitate the situation any more than it was. Because, and the other thing you need to understand is that the, the black movement was considered by the white status quo community as being a Jewish, Jewish communist pl uh, plot, mm -hmm. literally. So that's why it was so difficult time in Birmingham. And the Jewish community in the North didn't feel that pressure as much because there were much more, many more of them and their community was stronger. In the South, there were much, many less uh, Jews, period. Yeah. And they, they were more assimilated and more trying to walk without notice, if you will, in the well, white community. TK, the, the, and, and I appreciate you sharing a little bit more of your insight of, of your writings and your research for the book. The, the last topic I want to address was just that, the efforts of Carl Friedman, the efforts of A. Berkowitz, the efforts of, of these white men, businessmen, lawyers, whoever they may be, they really put themselves out there. And that's, that's really the heart of, of your, your writing in this book but they were able to do so and help bring about change. For example, Mr. Berkowitz was asked to go to the Birmingham Bar to help do a study to figure out 
what was the better form of government for Birmingham and, and why was he asked to do that? Well, that's another one of the, the incredible ironies that I've discovered, which is that that effort was actually, you know, I don't know how much um, input Berkowitz had before Sid Smyre decided to ask him to do that. Uh, Sid Smyre was a Birmingham, white Birmingham, Protestant Birmingham businessman. He was Methodist, I think, which you know, is really neither here nor there, except he was, um, he was a bigot, <laughs> okay? He was a racist by his own admission. And yet he turned out to be a, a real leader. Uh, and I suspect that some of his views I'm, I'm pretty sure they softened. Um, I'm not sure how much they completely changed, but I think he he I think he had a character arc uh, through all this this. But that's just my opinion. He it was it was in fact his position as a staunch uh, anti-desegregationist <laughs> that gave him the clout that he had in the white community. Mm -hmm. um, and he, in fact, he, it, during this time, he was, uh, he became the, the uh, president of the, of the business commu community, the Chamber of Commerce. I almost forgot that name because they changed. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he was a, he was a big leader in the, in the chamber. And he, but he, even he knew that Bull Connor was, was holding back the city. But behind that story is another story about another Jewish man, uh, Sheldon Schaefer, who not many people know about. He was an economist that came to Birmingham and he was actually hired by Sid Smyer to do an economic assessment as, about why one of uh, the the rock query rock quarries was not being successful, and Sheldon did an in-depth analysis of the economic situation in Birmingham to explain it to him, and sat with him for many hours. and And according to his notes, Smire listened, and I think it 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 made him aware. Plus, there were other people in the chamber that were constantly talking to him and putting pressure on him uh, about change. And he finally decided that Bull Connor had to go, that segregation had to go if Birmingham was to succeed economically. And so he asked A. Berkowitz to lead this study to change the form of government in Birmingham because that was the only way they could see to get rid of Bull Connor. Bull was bad for the economy, the bottom line. Yes. yes. And this this would this could ultimately lead us to a whole different topic about why Birmingham did not grow when Atlanta just blossomed on many fronts. Paul Hemphill wrote a phenomenal book, Leaving Birmingham, on this very his experiences growing up in the I think in either an Inslee or Woodlawn area. But he addressed that in his book. But TK, I could talk with you for the next six hours. 
about this and so much more, but I know we both have other things we need to be doing today, but I, I want to thank you for spending time with me today, for writing such an important book, in my opinion, and I hope you're not finished writing about this time period, but thank you so much for everything. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And, and guys, as I say each week, interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. And I can't define it any better than that. So thank you for stopping in and watching for a little bit. I did put links to TK's website, and it has all of her books and writings and about her. I also put the Amazon link to Behind the Magic Curtain. So again, thank you guys for watching either now or if you happen to catch us on YouTube. Hope you guys have a safe rest of your week and we will catch you next Tuesday. Y'all take care.